Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, senior politics reporter for NPR member station KPCC, Libby Dinkman, and NPR voting reporter Miles Parks. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners, to my guests. Um, so happy to have you both here. Libby Dinkman, senior politics reporter at NPR member station KPCC. You're a veteran of this show now. Thanks for I coming back. I am so pleased to be back, Sam. Thanks. Happy to have you. And Miles Parks, NPR reporter covering election, interference, security, voting, dimpled chads, phishing email scams. Happy to if have it's you, democracy, man. I got you. <laughs> this is your first time. <laughs> Libby, give him some advice on how to do this well. You know, leave all your expectations at the door. <laughs> Just come in focused and uh, hydrate a lot. Yes. I wore my confidence sweater today just so I could like really <laughs> feel good. And I'm feeling good. I love it. We're going to get to the news. There's so much news to talk about this week. But first, I do want to take a second to talk about the wackiest thing I saw this week, um, the so-called broom challenge. Did y'all see this? I did not. I missed this. Also did not. Can you tell us? This past Sunday, a Twitter user with an account named Michaela tweeted this video basically saying, hey, today is a very special day. Your broom can stand on its head. We have the tape. So NASA said today is the day, the only day that your broom can stand up on its own and watch this. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) She does it. And she's like, NASA said today because of the way the Earth is or whatever, it'll hold your broom up. So everyone starts doing it. The broom challenge takes off. I end up doing this thing this week. I stood my broom up in my apartment. But here's the thing. Libby, Miles, do you think it's true? I am a skeptic with a cold, dead Grinch heart. (laughs) And so I'm saying that is not true. Miles, do you think it's true? I think her broom did stand up, but do I think NASA said it? Yeah. It seems like an odd thing for NASA to weigh in on, personally. Well, ultimately, they did weigh in. By the middle of this week, NASA made their own broom challenge video. Did you do the broomstick challenge yesterday? Well, turns out you could do it again today. It's just physics. They basically said it can happen all the time any day because physics. (laughs) I I, I felt so duped. I what wanted type to believe of in broom it. are we talking about here? Like a straw broom, classic wooden handle? Are we talking about fancy plastic uh, bristle broom? I mean, these are questions that need answered before I try the broom challenge. Yeah. I mean, my broom probably stood up really easily because I never actually use it. Um, but I've seen all kinds of brooms on the Internet stand up. It was crazy. We're going to start the show as we always do. Each of my panelists will describe their week of news in only three words. Because they both cover voting this week, my panels are going to focus on 2020 and election security. We're talking a lot about election security about two weeks ago when the Iowa caucuses happened because it was kind of a hot mess. Um, The app they were using to help count votes didn't work out. The results were delayed. And if I recall correctly, I think they still haven't really called the actual winner. Well, there's been a lot of questions about the data that was released by the Iowa Democratic Party. And you saw the chairman just step down this week. Um, You know, I think calling it a hot mess is probably generous (laughs) to what happened at the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, yeah. And and so, like, it's easy to think, well, Iowa's over, we're good. 
But fun fact, Nevada has their caucus soon, and it could have some problems because the state had been working with the same company that made Iowa's disastrous caucus app. So just after Iowa was a fiasco, Nevada said, hold up, wait, we're going to switch it up. We're going to use something else. We're not going to do this. Uh, So there's still questions coming up about how secure some of this stuff will be. In that spirit, Miles, you have three words. Tell us, will Nevada be okay, and what else should we worry about? So my three words for the past couple weeks of election security uh, are fast, cheap, accurate. And you can only pick two. That's what election experts say is these are the three things that you want elections to be ideally, but there's no election that can be all three. Also, the three things you want a journalist to be fast, cheap and accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Miles. I'm sorry. Uh, A little inside humor. um, So obviously you want to pick accurate is going to be the first most important uh, part of an election. But then it comes down to that those other two fast and cheap. And what we saw in Iowa was they tried to do all three. They wanted to pay around $60,000 for a very quickly developed app that was not tested nearly enough. And that had problems with Nevada. I just talked to the state Democratic Party yesterday and got some more details on how this is going to work. Basically, What they're doing is picking accurate and cheap and fast is going to be a little bit relative because whereas Mm. Iowa tried to institute this app, the biggest thing that they wanted the app to do was to help with reporting results, get the information from their 1700 or so precincts back to the state really quickly. Mm -hmm. Nevada has said, we're not going to use technology. We're not going to use these iPads that we have to do that. We're going to do it over the phone, which could take a little longer. So when is their caucus? Uh, It is next Saturday officially, Uh but actually early caucusing starts this weekend. For the first time ever, Nevada Democrats are going to be able to do four days of early caucusing, which is its own separate kind of logistical challenge that the Democrats are having to work through, too. But that's a lot more accessible, right, for people who can't show up on that particular Saturday and stay for, you know, over an hour of positioning and then repositioning for their candidates. Um, That's a move to, I think, make things easier for working people, for parents, for folks who, you know, are not maybe physically able to go out to a caucus for multiple hours. In the aftermath of people still thinking about whatever interference happened in 2016, no matter how well Nevada goes or Super Tuesday goes, are people still going to just believe this system is inherently broken or glitchy, no matter what? I think... What experts would say is the best thing you can do if you're a voter worried about this stuff is not let it affect your uh, interactions with democracy. The thing that Russia wanted beyond all else, from what people who study the country and their motivations are, is yes, they seem to have been preferring President Trump in 2016, but they all, more than anything, wanted to delegitimize the democracy. And so their best case scenario with all of this, whether it's making, breaking, trying to break into the internet servers of local election officials, or whether it's sharing memes on social media, they don't want you to vote. The less people vote, the less people interact with the democracy and believe that their government officials are legitimate, the, the more helpful it is for adversaries of America. Huh. Huh. All right, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two great guests, Miles Parks, NPR reporter covering election interference and voting infrastructure, and Libby Dinkman, senior politics reporter at NPR member station KPCC. We're talking election security. Libby, you have three words on that topic focused on L.A. County. My three words, Sam, are ballot 
marking device. Okay. That, Voting machine. Uh, <laughs> that's the the terminology we use here is very sensitive. Okay. Right. Okay. And that's because. Uh, we have this long history of uh, America's relationship with voting technology. You know, if you go back to the 2000 election, of course, we all remember the folks inspecting those sheets with the dimpled mm-hmm. little punch cards mm-hmm. in Florida and the huge import that they had on the presidential election. Yeah. Well, that really ushered in this revolution in election technology where uh, many counties, many jurisdictions and states uh, were pushing to upgrade their election infrastructure, get more high-tech voting machines. So in the early 2000s, we uh, across the country really moved towards more of an electronic mm-hmm. voting model. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, over the years, things shifted. There was, even in the mid-2000s, a number of questions about the way that electronic voting machines record your vote. Many of them didn't have a paper backup trail that was auditable, that was something that would be kept after the election that you could reconstruct the election from. So uh, a number of security experts started to advocate for nothing but hand-marked paper ballots. This is what's crazy, Libby. So like 2000 happens. Everyone says paper's not working. We try to move to electric. And now 15, 16 years later, we're saying back to paper. Yes. What is what is up with this divide between those who say the only safe way is paper and those who say the only safe way is tech? Right. I was introduced to this because I started reporting on what Los Angeles County is doing, which is instituting these brand new ballot marking devices Uh that are built from scratch by the county. It's the first publicly owned voting machine certified for widespread use in the country. And And publicly owned is very important to, to say because most places that have machines or tech it's from private companies, right? Yes. And they really are, because they're privately held, because they dominate the marketplace, it's hard to track the inner workings of these companies. Yeah. Oftentimes, the equipment is expensive. So then jurisdictions don't want to upgrade or have a hard time upgrading because they don't control when these companies you know, move on to a new technology and say, don't oh. service the old parts. And so LA says... We're going to do it all ourselves. Yes. About 10 years ago, L.A. decided to uh, embark on this really ambitious project to create its own voting system. And so Los Angeles said, we want to create one voting system that everyone can use, no matter your language or physical disability. We want it to have a paper trail. So these devices uh, have a voter bring their ballot to the machine. They insert it in the machine. People make selections on the touchscreen. And then once they're done, they print out the ballot and cast it. So okay. this is this hybrid between the voting machines of the past that ah. came out after the 2000 election and the paper-only situation. Okay. Uh, so it's it's sort of like a uniting of these two uh, disparate sides of the voting security yeah. versus accessibility debate. I like that. So then if LA's new model is let's merge the worlds of paper voting and tech voting. If this works for L.A. County, does that then become the model for the rest of the country? That is what L.A. is hoping for. And I should say it's not without controversy. I mean, you know, I did a lot of reporting on the testing reports of this new system because Mm -hmm. it's brand new. There were a lot of uh, certification requirements that the secretary of state piled on these things uh, having to do with disk encryption and 
paper jams, if you can believe it. Paper jams were a big problem in testing, which can cause delays and have... I can believe it. I've, I've sure. worked in offices for 10 years. I mean, <laughs> nothing is always more be jamming. frustrating, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the paper jams are an issue. You know, if this is successful, though, the hope for L.A. is that this travels around the country and that this new publicly owned voting system is the wave of the future. So goes L.A., so goes the world. I think so. (laughs) Question for both of you. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of Iowa's fiasco, in the midst of continuing questions about foreign interference in the election this year, what are voters saying about all of this? Do they care? Are they worried? Are they going to live their voting lives any differently? Um, I think the short answer is yes, they care. We've seen in surveys we've done in the last two years that all of this talk about election interference has seeped into the public's opinion. Uh, there, We did a poll a few weeks ago that was released that found that almost 40% of American voters think a foreign country is going to manipulate votes what? Uh, in the 2020 election, which we have, did not see. We have no evidence that that happened in 2016. We, we've talked a lot about all the different interference efforts that Russia did uh, partake in, but that did not include, we have no evidence that that included actually manipulating votes. And yet there's this huge chunk of the American population uh, that that believes that's going to happen or that's something that happens consistently. And I think that's really worrisome to election administrators. Libby, what are you hearing from voters here in L.A.? The L.A. primary is coming up. Um, What we're seeing is not a lot of engagement um, so far on, you know, how people are going to vote, on where they're going to vote, things like that. But as soon as we start reporting about this new election technology that is headed for Los Angeles, security was the number one thing we heard Mm -hmm. about was how do I know that this machine that's marking my ballot is not going to change my vote without me knowing it. And I think that is the ripple effects of of 2016. And and it is shown in that survey that Miles just mentioned as well. I I do think it's worth mentioning, too, though, that. Um, When we talk about national attitudes, about people's kind of concerns about the presidential election, you see very different results when you ask people about their confidence in their local election Hmm. administrators, like in their poll workers that they actually interact with. People are super confident that their poll precinct works really well. Our survey shows that most people don't have a problem when they go to vote. They don't have a problem with the registration. They don't wait in long lines and their polling place is pretty close to them or they enjoy voting by mail, which, Mm -hmm. you know, that is something that we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, But that is on paper and that's something that's on the rise uh, this country in 2020. It's going to be the most that people have ever voted by mail in any federal election. You know what I want? And I've wanted this for years. I want to be able to vote for president or Congress or whoever by doing the same thing I used to do when I would call American Idol to vote for Fantasia. <laughs> Let me just call up a number, hit a button, take my vote. That's I what like I want. I want to hook you up with like 15 security experts and just have them yell at you. <laughs> Ruben like Stutter 2020. That's yes. my candidate. Yes. All right. It's time for a break. <laughs> Coming up, the Trump White House recently proposed a new executive order. It's called Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again. Seriously, the goal is to return federal buildings to a more quote-unquote classical style. Big columns, domed roofs. After the break, we ask an architecture critic whether this thing is really real or not, and whether it's about more than just buildings. After the break, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We'll be right back. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Did you know that Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically? With no limit to how much you can earn or how much they'll match. Plus, Discover is accepted at over 95% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when you use your Discover card, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2019 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Support for this podcast comes from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. What's good, y'all? As you know, February is Black History Month, and all throughout that month, NPR's Code Switch is going to be running a special series about the history of Black resistance. Because as long as Black folks have been oppressed in this country, which is, you know, forever, we've also been fighting back. Listen and subscribe. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders in studio with two guests, Libby Dinkman, senior politics reporter at NPR member station KPCC, and Miles Parks, NPR reporter covering elections and voting as well. Um, it is only February of 2020. Y'all will be working very hard through at least November covering votes and stuff. What is your number one method of self-care right now? Wes Anderson movies. Oh. Did a little Moonrise Kingdom on Friday night. Okay. Nice. Pretty heartwarming. It holds up. Yeah, it really it's does. Beautiful film. I like that. Well, if we're going with media, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on okay. Netflix is my yes. my self-care. Yes. But also just getting any kind of physical activity outside. There's that. It's very tough to get away from screens. Yes. It turns out. Yes, turns out. I've been deleting Twitter off my phone on the weekends. Do it. Do Ooh, it. Ooh, good tactic. <laughs> Libby. Miles, the Trump White House recently proposed a new executive order called Making Federal Buildings Great Again that would make new federal buildings, courthouses, federal offices, etc. It would make them all be in a quote unquote classical style. Like think like marble and the big columns and the rounded domes. This would be a big deal if it takes place because for the last few decades, architects have been able to make federal buildings look like all kinds of things, right? Um, and a lot of those new buildings in the last few decades, they don't look classical at all. Um, on top of changing that, this new rule would also make a commission to decide whether new buildings are classical enough. And they would ban architects and architecture critics from serving on the panel. This is like shaking up the architecture world. And this also raises bigger questions about what America and America's buildings should look like and what our notions of these buildings say about who we think is American and what we think is America. I don't know. I had big questions about it. So I wanted to figure it out. uh, And I called up Kate Wagner. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for your time. She's an architecture critic and she runs the blog McMansion Hell. She wrote about this new rule in the New Republic, and she told me that American architecture has always been kind of a hodgepodge. 
the founders brought a bunch of different architectural motifs from different sort of classical uh, elements, like Monticello by Thomas Jefferson is a famous example of just a building that combines all kinds of Greek and Roman motifs, but it's not necessarily true to the Greek and Roman style as it was back in the Greek and Roman days. So, I mean, it's always been a weird mashup, right? Yeah, and also, like, it, it totally assumes a completely Western demographic like that everyone in america is western european or has western Mm. european ancestry and for people who do not fit into sort of like the white western paradigm like that's not their architecture it turns out there's been an ongoing battle in certain corners of america and the internet over federal building architecture like there are pockets of the internet that like debate this stuff and have very big grand ideas about what it should be can you talk more about who online is super into this stuff? Most of this discourse happens on Twitter, frankly, um, between sort of two groups. One is, we call them like the trad arc people. This is is totally arcane. Trad arc, like traditional architecture people. Okay, (laughs) okay. And so around the turn of like the Trump era, these folks like started these big Twitter accounts and they called things like architectural revival and like, beautiful streets and stuff like that and they basically tweet pictures of like european plazas and like the pantheon and say like this is western society and it's like so beautiful and we live in like a fallen time and uh we need to hearken back to our architectural ancestors and this became like a big enough phenomenon that the new statesman published an article about these accounts and how they're like weirdly like crypto fascist crypto fascist Uh, what do you mean by that talking about things like the downfall of Western society and how like modern architecture is degenerate, which is a dog whistle used by, for example, the Nazis in order to go after institutions like the Bauhaus and sort of like a cultural purge. And there's a lot of sort of cloaked rhetoric about the supremacy of like Western aesthetics. As soon as you begin to talk about the supremacy of the West, you kind of wade into territory of the supremacy of white people. Yeah, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> is there some race caught up in this as well? You know, like oh, yeah. Ideas of race and racism and who gets to make decisions? Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of like closeted anti-Semitism in this. Like the idea that modern architecture is like a rootless cosmopolitan degenerate art. Those are all sort of anti-Semitic dog whistles huh. left over from the 20th century. Wow. I lived in D.C. for many years. And when I was a reporter there, I was assigned to cover the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Mm. That is a new Smithsonian Museum on the mall that looks nothing like anything else on the mall. Listeners, if you Google, it looks like a big gilded box. And it's like beautiful and different. And they made the architecture to be really different to speak to African culture and history. That is one of the most popular museums in the country, in large part because it looks different. So, like, if this plan were to go through and they were to say all the buildings have to look the same again, would that be bad for business? Would that keep us from having things that might excite people to go into federal buildings that look different? I mean, I definitely think that's true. In my opinion, what I think that if we were going to revitalize federal architecture, what we should do is nurture the buildings that we already have, some of which desperately need renovation or upgrades. I do think that there is a need to recenter a focus on federal architecture. But I don't think that this is the way to do that. I think that like putting Greco-Roman columns on the Museum of African-American History and Culture is not That'd the way <laughs> it would be weird. And also it's it sends a subtle signal that what we think is better than what you've done. 
is there an argument that could be made that says, well, maybe this is not about Western supremacy, quote unquote. Maybe it's not about race. Maybe just our president who came from real estate and is into buildings by virtue of his background is just super into buildings that look a certain way. It's funny that Trump is like going all in on like classical architecture, mostly because Trump's own buildings, for the most part, are like modernist buildings. They're big glass towers, like a big glassy tower. He built in the dominant style of the time. Like when he was building his glass modern buildings, modernism, especially sort of corporate modernism, was the language of the power of American capitalism. Corporate modernism being like tall as you can make it. Very shiny. as you can make it, yeah. Yeah. So he cops that style because that's the style that speaks to what he thinks he is in Mm. his work as a developer. And actually, I I would like to say here that I think classical architecture is beautiful. I think it's great. I think a lot of people love it for obvious reasons because it is monumental. It does. It is breathtaking in the scope of the detail, uh, the sort of long, rich history. But that being said, this idea that classicism is inherently populist or inherently superior to modernism is kind of ignores a really important fact, which is that people have all kinds of reasons for loving buildings. Yeah. Last question for you. You know architecture a lot more than me and probably most of the folks listening. What do you think is America's architectural aesthetic, if you had to name it? I think that America can't be flattened down to a singular aesthetic. And people have tried many, many times. Um, And I think that one of the things about America that is so great, not to use that word. It's a word, you can use it. (laughs) (laughs) Is that there is this kind of like architectural messiness and plurality to the built environment. I mean, on the one hand, you have things like the Capitol building. And on the other hand, you have like a McDonald's like around the corner from the Capitol building. I I mean, those things exist in the same block. And that's fine. Can I just tell you, hearing you say this as someone who lives in L.A. right now, that is all (laughs) of L.A. and I love it. There is no architectural center. There is no architectural purpose to this place. Every building looks different. But you know what? Makes it pretty exciting. Thanks again to Kate Wagner. She's an architecture critic, and she also writes the blog McMansion Hell. She has an article in The New Republic called Dunsing About Architecture. Miles, Libby, what is y'all's favorite federal building? I know you have one. That's tough because every time I'm going to a federal building these days, it's usually a a stressful occasion (laughs) where I'm trying to update my passport Uh or I have to cover a trial. Um, Do monuments count? Sure. So I have to be corny and say the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. That is classical. When you go and and walk up to it. I mean, for me, the first time I saw it, I cried. Miles? I am also similarly basic. Um, I, I, uh, the U.S. Capitol, I live about, okay. like, okay. hey, hold on, hold on, okay. hold on, hold on. I live, like, 10 blocks from it, and so I walk past it, and I, like, have this moment every time where I turn this corner, and it's just, like, boom, right there, and you're reminded where you are. My favorite is the Hirshhorn Museum. It's a big old round concrete donut. It's funny. It makes me laugh. Anyways. Is that classical? Uh, not at all. Not at all. Not classical, Was but it I like built it. by Homer Simpson? <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, we'll play my favorite game, Who Said That? 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Target. As a supplier diversity lead for Target, Mike Alexander's job is to discover new vendors, like Ray Phillips, the founder of Soap Socks, and foster a relationship to help them grow. We want to bring in companies that can offer an assortment to our guests that meets their needs, that are innovative, and represent their community. To see a company like Target taking the initiative and really going out to seek out vendors that look like me or come from the communities I come from or just other people who may not be entirely represented, it's an amazing thing to see. It's allowed us to be more self-assured in our ability to deliver the product that we think the customers would love. Learn more about how Target supports diverse entrepreneurs at Target.com slash Founders We Love. Want to play in the very same place as Chance the Rapper, Taylor Swift, Yo-Yo Ma, or Mitski? If you're an unsigned musician, you could play at NPR Music's famous Tiny Desk. Just submit a video to the Tiny Desk Contest, find out more, and see the official rules at NPR.org slash Tiny Desk Contest. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here in studio with two great guests, Libby Dinkman, senior politics reporter at NPR member station KPCC, and Miles Parks, NPR reporter covering everything election related. You guys, it's time for my favorite game, Who Said That? All right, Libby, you've played this game before. Explain the rules to Miles. It's his first time playing. I'm pretty sure I remember this right. Uh, You say something and then we have to guess who said that? That is literally it. Yeah, I will share three quotes from the week. Oh, gosh. And you have to guess who said the quote. Or just like pop culture stuff? Oh, gosh. You'll be fine. Guess who said the quote or guess what I'm talking about. Uh, The winner gets nothing. There are also no buzzers because we're cheap. So just yell it out. You ready? I'm good at yelling. You can do this. Yeah. First quote. I try to maintain a very simple lifestyle. Drink coffee, write, and try not to meet a lot of people. Who said that? Someone who won really big this week. Someone who won a Bernie very... Sanders? No. <laughs> but someone who won an award this week. Oh, uh, the guy who won the Oscar? There's many people Bong that win Oscars. Jin Bong, Ho. The, the yes, guy. yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that quote comes from Oscar winner Bong Joon-ho. His film Parasite won four Oscars uh, this past weekend, and it was the first non-English-speaking movie to win Best Picture at the Oscars. He also won Best Director. But he told The Telegraph recently the secrets to his success, which include drinking coffee and avoiding people. I love that man. (laughs) Seconded. He needs to be my new life coach. (laughs) (laughs) Libby, you got that first point. Cha-ching! Next quote. We feature all home buyers and living choices. Who said that? What TV channel would say something like that? What t- HGTV? Yes. Y'all didn't hear about this this week? No. no. This week, HGTV had an episode of House Hunters that featured a thruple. That was the first time in HGTV history. Oh, wow. A thruple is-, is a three-person couple. So- I mean, sorry, a three-person 
relationship. I can't say three-person couple. <laughs> From a housing price perspective, I can see the benefits of something like that. Like, as somebody, a young person who I don't think I'll ever be able to afford Washington, D.C., I'm like, well, if I, there were three people. Yeah, if my boyfriend and I can't afford Los Angeles real estate, we'll just go on the dating scene, and then maybe <laughs> things will go better for us. <laughs> so... This made a lot of buzz this week because, you know, for a long time, there have been people that are in three-person relationships or in polyamorous relationships. And for the first time ever, you saw it on HGTV, which means that those folks can be just as house crazy as the rest of us. I mean, I wonder, though, are they going to get a bathroom with three sinks? Oh, that's key. In order to maintain the health of a relationship, <laughs> a sink for every person is the most important it's thing. It's key. I feel like the one of the big benefits of living with a partner, though, is like not having to live in group houses anymore. And so I feel like this really eliminates that benefit. You're back in a group me. house. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Final quote. You ready? As ready as we will ever be. Uh-huh. The quote <laughs> is, our opinion is this didn't impact the game. We had a good team. We won the World Series, and we'll leave it at that. I'm seething right now because <laughs> that was the Astros manager. Yes. That was Jim Crane, the owner of the Astros. This story makes me so mad. So the Astros, for the first time since this big cheating scandal was revealed, they have apologized for their sign stealing that they took part in in 2017, which many believe is the reason they won the World Series and beat the Dodgers that year. They cheated. I as I actually kind of empathize with the Astros, and let okay. me tell you why. Hold okay. on, hold on. Okay. When I was eleven wow, years old, Miles. Wow. when I was eleven years old, I got I got in trouble for sign stealing in Little League. I'm not joking. I <laughs> you should play I, for the Astros. I was a bench warmer, and they wouldn't put me on the field, so I, had, I wanted to make a contribution, and I figured out what the bunt <laughs> signal was from the third base coach, and started yelling bunt whenever they the other you team were just was yelling going. out. Uh, yeah, I, I so I did it one time. Once I figured it out, I was like, watch the bunt, and the kid goes lays on a bunt right to our third baseman boom and then my coach comes over and reams me out because yeah. he considered unsportsmanlike i would argue that's strategy i'm like if you have a signal that an 11 year old can figure out then that's on your problem wow, astros so if you're listening you got a new hire <laughs> miles and bill belichick can go hang out with the other cheaters wow. come at me patriots fans yes tom brady knew tom brady knew Hashtag make better signs tom brady knew speaking of cheating Libby did not cheat, and she still won. Congratulations. You're one who said that. Three to zero. I secretly did steal all of your signs from your producer this morning, Sam. So <laughs> thanks, Astros. <laughs> all right. That concludes Who Said That. Congratulations. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, we ask our listeners to share with us the best things that have happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They always do. Let's listen. Hi Sam, uh, this is Isabel from London, England and the best thing that happened to me this week was I bought a pair of running shoes and I went for a run for the first time in six years and it was horrible <laughs> but I'm going to do it again next week. Hi Sam, this is John from Washington DC. The best part of my week was spending my 31st birthday at White Sands National Park. The best part of my week was finally receiving my official acceptance letter to start my PhD at the University of Vermont. Getting together with a group of my friends to organize a fundraiser for the wildlife in Australia affected by the bushfires. The best part of my week was finding out that the swelling on my chest is not a recurrence of my breast cancer. Hi Sam, this is Alan from Virginia. 
The best thing that happened to me last week was my baby daughter was born. Couldn't call this in last week because I was a bit busy. The best thing that's happening to me this week is I get to celebrate being married to the most wonderful woman I know. I love you, Yvette. Hey Sam, this is Kate. The best part of my week was when I looked over and saw my 8th grade daughter putting some of her babysitting money in her backpack and I asked her what she needed cash for at school and she said the student council was selling Valentine candy grams and I asked her if she was going to send one and she said, yeah, I'm going to send one to myself. I just thought this kid is going to be okay. Thanks. Love the show. Love the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Bye. Bye, Sam. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much for all that you do. I hope you have a great week, too. Gotta love a good self-Valentine. Speaking of Valentines, uh, the best part of my week every year around this time is uh, my mother's birthday, which is Valentine's Day. Miss Regina Sanders, I hope you are uh, doing well. Let me know if you get the flowers. Uh, thanks to all the listeners we heard from there. Uh, send photos of White Sands National Park, my favorite spot in the country. And congrats to all those folks living great, good lives. Miles, Libby, best parts of your week. Go. I have to say, it's the fact that uh, New Hampshire seemed to have gone according to plan, which didn't, uh, which <laughs> it wasn't Iowa. And so that, yes. that actually made my life really good this week and made it so I was able to get some sleep. Uh-huh. The best part of my week is always when I come home and my little dachshund spaniel mix Monty is welcoming me and I try to appreciate the little things. So yeah. just cuddling with the dog is the best part of my week. Also, your boyfriend's there too, huh? Oh, yeah, him. <laughs> All right. Yes. Thanks to those listeners you heard from Isabel, John, Liza, Jessica, Lynn, Alan, Reggie, and Kate. Listeners, you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record the sound of your voice onto your phone and email that sound file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman, Anjali Sastry, Danny Hensel, and Janae West. Special shout out to Brent. His birthday is also this weekend. Happy, happy birthday. Our fearless editor is Kitty Isley. Our superhero intern is Hafsa Fatima. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, thank you for listening. Happy Valentine's weekend. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. Listener.